Today's episode of The Crack Podcast is sponsored by Squarespace. Whether you need a portfolio to showcase your work, a store to sell your products and services, or a blog to share your ideas, Squarespace gives you everything you need to make your next move into a reality. Not to mention, with Squarespace's beautifully designed templates and customizable features, creating a website is a simple and intuitive process. Simply add and arrange your content with the click of a mouse. So start your free trial today at squarespace.com and enter offer code CRACKED to get 10% off your first purchase. Thanks, Squarespace. Now on to the show. Hello, the internet, and welcome to another episode of the Cracked Podcast. My name is Jack O'Brien. I was the editor-in-chief of Cracked by the time you hear this. I won't be anymore. Uh, I will have assumed my new... More ostentatious title, editor in Pope, uh, all editorial team members will refer to me going forward as his holiness. No, I'm no longer editor-in-chief because I've resigned. After 11 years, I'm leaving Cracked. For people who don't know, I started Cracked, the website version. That was actually the first name we had for it, but we shortened it to Cracked.com. Justin Timberlake was like, lose the the website version of just cracked.com. But I started cracked.com when I was 24. We flipped the switch and set it live from my girlfriend's apartment on 17th Street and 8th Avenue in Manhattan. I still remember getting confirmation from my Romanian webmaster, Sebastian, over Yahoo Instant Messenger that we were live on the national internet and feeling a sudden like rush of panic, even though nobody was coming to the website. Uh, and then I looked out the window and saw someone pooping under a streetlight because my girlfriend lived next to a methadone clinic. Anyway, since then, that girlfriend's become my wife. We built an incredible team at Cracked. Cracked subsequently became a pretty great website that I'm intensely proud to have played a part in creating. Uh, that site became successful. I let that success go to my head and eventually found myself pooping under that same streetlight. Uh, I pieced my life back together, launched this podcast. My wife and I had a son. Both were named The Cracked Podcast. Anyways, in this, my final episode, we're going to talk to four fan favorite guests, Jason Dan, Soren, and Michael about their favorite subjects we've covered since this podcast became a thing, and since they all happen to be people who were instrumental in building Cracked, we'll probably uh, reflect on some memories while Brett softly plays Green Day's Time of Your Life, as covered by me and my new acapella group that I'm leaving to start. But joining me in those conversations is going to be Alex Schmidt who will be taking over the hosting duties from me of this podcast. And then at the end, we're going to talk to Mandy Russin, who is the woman who's been my co-VP at Cracked for the past few years and who will continue to run the business after I go. So Dan, Jason, Michael, and Soren will all still be here. This podcast will still have an amazing host, or will have an amazing host going forward, depending on how you feel about me. Those people's boss will still be someone who's been at Cracked for over a decade. Mandy's just an amazing woman. She's been at the site longer than almost anybody. It's crazy that this is going to be the first time you guys have ever met her. It's sad, because I've loved creating this podcast and this website, uh, and I got to do it with some amazingly talented and 
probably more importantly, truly kind and incredibly generous people that I'll be leaving behind. But it shouldn't be sad for you because this podcast and this website are in very capable hands. They're going to be more cracked podcasts that I think you guys are really going to love. And I'm not sure how much I'm allowed to share with you guys about where I'm going. Frankly, it's just pretty cool of Cracked to give me this episode to say goodbye. I don't think most places would do that. So I'll just tell you I'm leaving to do something that uh, I think you guys, the audience of this podcast, will enjoy. But yeah, if you want to find out more about what I'll be making, follow me on Twitter at Jack underscore O'Brien, O-B-R-I-E-N. And I'll tell you about it there when I have more details to pass along. So to recap... I'll be missing from your life for a couple months here. This podcast isn't going to be missing at all. And both Cracked and I are going to be making new podcasts that I think you're really going to like. I'm sure a lot of you will have a lot of questions like why I'm leaving. And yeah, unfortunately, the answer to that is unsatisfying and kind of cliched. It's just straight cash, homie. No, I'm not going to get into more detail than to say I've been at Cracked for 11 years, but every couple of years, my job would change. When I started, I wrote most of the articles, and by the end, I was overseeing an editorial and video and podcasting team of 30 insanely talented people. But my job's been pretty much the same for the last few years, and it seemed like it was going to continue to be about the same for the foreseeable future, and I guess I'm ready for a new challenge. Now, I know what you're asking, but Jack, isn't that almost the exact same reason Michael Jordan gave for leaving the NBA to try Major League Baseball? It is, but I find it helps to try not to think about that too much. Anyways, that's as much detail as I'll get into, but this episode, a very loose approximation of a greatest hits show where we revisit some of the best things we've learned on this show over the last few years with... Alex, Schmitty the Clan. And yeah, we'll both be back at the end for some footnotes. Talk to you then. All right, we are joined for the last time by Mr. Michael Swaim for my last time. <laughs> I was like, yeah, I You've just been coughed. Fired. I coughed into a handkerchief and there's blood spots. It's <laughs> <laughs> the universal sign. Yeah. Uh, I, I feel fine. Hello. <laughs> How's it going, Michael? Well, great, except I'm dying. Yeah, yeah, apparently. You leaving my life is the same Yes. to me. Yeah, that's probably <laughs> almost definitely true. Yeah, can I have that raise now? <laughs> <laughs> You're on your way out, man. You don't give a shit. Yeah, man, just fucking <laughs> throw a party. Uh, <laughs> that's what I've been, I've been working here for 10 years. Every year at performance review, I'm like, can I please have a rager at the office? That's all I want. <laughs> all he talks about. Yeah. <laughs> Trying to impress a girl. But the raise, no raise. No. Yeah. You can pay for so many parties, Michael. <laughs> and this is Alex Schmidt. He's oh. going to be taking over the podcast from me. There's going to be a lot of tension, I'm not going to lie to you, between Alex and... no. Especially because uh, you explicitly promised it to me yeah, as yeah. The occasional co-host. Right. Um, I had t-shirts made, I told my family. <laughs> yeah. I don't know who this clam is you got over here. <laughs> when each of you walked in and put a gun on the table, that was a right. little bit upsetting. <laughs> so we're talking to each of the core cast members of the podcast about 
one subject that we found mm-hmm. really interesting, and you and I wanted to show how much we've learned by talking about the thing we talked about in the first episode again. Yeah. <laughs> um, and, you know, just rehashing it real quick. That's how you show you learn something, right? Regurgitating it yeah, word for word. That's exactly. what I learned in school. Yeah. I'll be giving a lot of mnemonics during the course of this <laughs> for people to remember. Yeah. Every good boy loves no so the flynn effect is folks learn yearly new damn it almost new knowledge good job i can see why you're the new host (laughs) (laughs) the job is 80 percent spelling so uh you're gonna want to work on that so it is the widely observed and consistent increase in intelligence from 1930 through the present day. And it was observed by a guy named James Flynn, who I talked to on a past episode of this show. I forget what he was trying to figure out, but it it was in 1987. He noticed that, I think it was on like a Dutch military exam. Yeah, I think that's right. It was standardized. The test was standardized in the same way that our SAT was. And he noticed that every time they normalized the test, every time they would recreate the test for a new generation, the test would get slightly harder, which meant that scoring... It had to to keep 100 standard. Yeah, it had to get harder. It had to get slightly harder in order to keep pace with the people taking it, which when he first observed this, he was like, well, this must be an error, or this must mean that (laughs) Mm -hmm. IQ tests are bullshit because there's no way the people around me are the smartest people to ever exist on the In planet. history, Earth. yeah. Right. Um, you know, it was 87, so Def Leppard's Pour Some Sugar on Me was like number one <laughs> on the charts. and That you. was actually his rebuttal. Yes. He just attached that to the report. And he's um, like, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> <laughs> so he went and looked at all these other tests that had been sort of normalized throughout the years and saw the same thing on SATs, IQ tests in particular. Basically, it's always going up and pretty much at the same rate. If we use IQ as the standard, it's about three IQ points per decade. So that means that... Well, your children are a threat. Yes, That's what it means exactly. to me. That's the first thing that I thought. <laughs> well, I was just thinking about the fact that, you know, now that I have a son, he is on average... 15 to 18 IQ points smarter than his grandparents. Just like I like how you nicely sidestep comparing him to yourself. Well, because it's not as noticeable. It's only like nine. Oh, I see. Right. I well, I could still take him, but my dad (laughs) no chance. Real, uh, really slow. But it's a noticeable difference. It is right compared to people born 60 years before. A person. And it's noticeable in cardinal human events, I think, and milestones throughout your life. There's that classic feeling everyone knows that we call the generation gap or whatever. There's a time where, and everyone varies, but by and large, a lot of people who make it to old age experience a period of locking into like, there was a culture that moved at the speed that I think at everything from that era totally is clear to me. It takes increasingly more effort to understand new things made for the next generation and the next after that. Right. And you get to the point where if you're a great grandparent, it's almost a certainty you think your great grandkids' culture and music is like 
just a bunch of bleeps and bloops of right. nonsense. Just noise. <laughs> or it sounds like your music sped up a hundred times right. and that's been going on forever. And I think the way our audience is probably more likely to have experienced it is watch the entertainment that your grandparents watched, like watch the comedies that they watched. And yeah. they're going to seem very simple and like slow. Like you can see mm -hmm. the jokes coming. I highly recommend watching like a comedy blind spot or I guess just lost to history is this show called Fractured Flickers, which sort of came out of the group that made Rocky and Bullwinkle. But it's basically the old school MST3K. They would show popular movies and like Tarzan shorts of the time in black and white huh. and have celebrity like Dean Martin and stuff and like Alan Sherman, the satirist who like presaged Weird Al, just like do voices over them. And it's so painfully slow and bad. Are they, are they redoing the lines or are they doing like jokes about what's happening? It's MST3K if the rule was you can only speak as a character. Yeah. They try to only talk when the people's lips are moving. <laughs> but what's crazy is there's only a joke roughly every 60 seconds. And you can't fathom that people watched it. But there is, it cuts to the audience and there's a packed house of very nicely dressed people politely <laughs> waiting a minute for the next joke right. and going, ha ha, good, very <laughs> good. Yeah. I like how that was also probably fully scripted. And then by our generation, there was a whose line is in any way game where they would just make up every line of the entire right. scene on yeah. the spot. Right. And they would have like a really high joke density. Yeah. Just making it up on the spot. So anyways, I, I don't want to spend too much time explaining what it is sure. because that's what we did in the first episode. The conclusion we kind of came to is that this is sort of the natural consequence of the written record, I guess. It's not evolution. Evolution doesn't work that quickly. Right. Like your brain's not different. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. And that's kind of a key distinction that I think you pointed out in the first episode that really helped crystallize this for me is that our brain is exactly the same as those cavemen that were only able to grunt and, <laughs> you know, like didn't know how to make fire right. themselves. And they had much, much simpler lives. I mean, evolution never stops, but our brain is probably evolutionarily almost identical to those people's yeah. brains. So it's not a physical difference. So what has changed? And the thing that has changed is that culture has gotten increasingly complex, especially once the written record kicks in. As a species, we're collectively remembering every smart idea, essentially. Well, it's a so magic trick. We take it for granted, but the fact that we can learn at all is as awesome as in the Matrix, where they upload information to your brain. You're like, I can fly a helicopter now. You could do that <laughs> in real life. It just takes a little longer. The fact that you even can learn to fly a helicopter over time is amazing. And it's only language that allows you to. Yeah, we invented this trick where it's like, we can now directly shoot information into your brain. You just have to scan your eyes over this column of symbols. That's amazing. <laughs> right. The invention of the written word is sort of a foregone conclusion for us now. But when you think about it, it's a really crazy invention. Yeah. Because prior to that, 
it was just people talking to each other and like saying things and rhyming couplets so that it was easy <laughs> to remember. And yeah. like, that was all the information that got passed down. Yeah. It was very hard for us to keep up the site at that time. Yes. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> almost uh, impossible. Yeah. Just having to repeat the same articles <laughs> over and over to everybody who came by. And visit your towns. <laughs> right. And, you know. Ugh. Yeah. When you have a written record, everything one generation figures out doesn't get erased. So the written record allows us to add quantitatively to humanity's store of information. But the thing that the Flynn effect suggests is that it also adds to our ability to think qualitatively, like we can think better, essentially, at least yeah, well, with regards well. to what is tested by IQ tests, which is sure. like pattern recognition, reasoning, essentially. Right, versus wisdom. Like you don't have to have any life experience. It's like quickly determining a, a pattern by looking right. at a sequence of things. But I will say there's a recent study or a, a one or two actually that I looked at this morning that are saying that it might be leveling out. Are you aware of that? Yeah, I've heard that, that it might be leveling out. In I, some countries. Right, in the most advanced countries like our own. Yeah, but my thought is that's because in IQ tests, obviously, you're not allowed to use your phone or computer. Right. I mm. really think the next phase of the Flynn effect is now we're becoming cyborgs and we just don't right. call it that. Oh. But that's human intelligence is continually increasing. But IQ tests that test just how much can your meat brain do are becoming obsolete. Because who lives with only their meat brain at their disposal? You have your phone brain as well. I'm not going to decide if it's true that we're leveling out oh, okay. just yet until like another generation comes along and is able to be like, yeah, we're not as smart as you guys or, or we're <laughs> right, just right, the right, same right. intelligence. <laughs> we're the first generation that hasn't been an improvement. I wouldn't be surprised if that was a feature of the Flynn effect where each generation says, ah, it's leveled out. We're now this like uh, it, it stopped with us. Yeah. It stopped with us that is because very convenient. that is kind of the thing that we would like to believe. Mm -hmm. I think a really good illustration of this that we talked about in the first episode. So quantitative information, like the generation that invented the plane, then gives birth to a generation that invents rockets that go into mm -hmm. outer space. So those are learnings that build on top of each other. The thing that we were talking about in the first one was comedy and how, and you just brought it up again, but how I don't find John Belushi very funny, <laughs> but I find Chris Farley very funny because I was raised on Chris Farley yeah. and Chris Farley was raised on John Belushi and sort of synthesized everything that he loved about John Belushi and like created this like more sophisticated yeah. thing that assumes John Belushi and is Chris Farley. Yeah, every time I watch a really old comedy, and this is a trick I don't think a lot of people can do, you have to sit there holding in your brain the whole time. They sat in a room and invented this joke that I've heard a thousand times, so yeah. it doesn't make me laugh. But this is the first time. Respect. And like, right. I, but I get people <laughs> who are like, I just can't watch old movies because there's definitely an acceleration of like, well, I already saw a movie that is based on a movie based on a movie based on what they invented here. This is not interesting to me. Right. Yeah. yeah. 
I think there's an imperceptible pattern recognition, like speeding up of the way in which we think. We've looked at uh, movie trailers and how yeah, uh, the original Die Hard movie trailer is this guy being like, John McClane's an easy guy to like <laughs> and a hard guy to kill. Yeah. And He's like, played then, by Bruce Willis. To be clear, they're not the same person. <laughs> <laughs> He's an actor portraying John McClane. Yeah, essentially. It really yeah. spells it out. Yeah. <laughs> really? To find your theater, use a rotary phone to dial 411. Right. It really spells it out. And then when you leap forward to the most recent Die Hard, which wasn't even a very good movie, but the trailer for that has this one shot where it pans over to an opening garage and you hear the Ode to Joy playing. And it's a reference to the shot in the first movie Mm -hmm. That is like, these guys are thieves, like this is the same thing happening over again. But it's all happening at like a subliminal, imperceptible level where they don't have to hold your hand. They don't have to underline anything. And that's another way that I think we've gotten way more sophisticated in our lifetime. And I actually think it has to do with MTV. Like when MTV first came around, people couldn't deal with the idea of intercutting a concert video with a story. They were yeah. like, wait, why does it? Why does he keep cutting back and forth? Why is he yeah, here now? Like, like it was just like weird to them. Yeah. Yeah, because I don't know. It, it was just like a thing <laughs> they had never seen. And so with time, MTV was like this completely new visual language that people had to learn and young people were learning way faster than their parents and their grandparents weren't even like conceiving of it and that's what's crazy is to the younger generation each thing that's new that's bewildering it's like i don't understand how you don't understand that exactly. i really feel like i only needed to see one music video and i'm like yeah, so half of it is the band playing in a warehouse and half is the little comic strip of the music video right What's so hard about that? <laughs> People were baffled. Yeah. But yeah. then you cut back to the early movies of a train coming at the camera, and people would scream and run out of the theater right. because they thought a train was going to rip through the screen. Right. Yeah. And now, They're like, you fools, get out. <laughs> and now keep in mind, those people's brains are the same. Are the yeah. same, physically same the brain. same. It's yeah. just we're building on top of each passing generation's Yeah. Mindset. I always wonder if it has any connection to, and I don't have any evidence that it does, but I also feel like there's huge uptick in multitasking i always do two things at once at least (laughs) or working on an article but there is music and king of the hill is muted on the tv michael solved three rubik's cubes since we started this podcast (laughs) and if cocaine counts as like a task (laughs) on top of that and yet there's all these studies that say that multitasking is not a thing Right. That the brain can even do. And so I'm just like hurting my productivity. I don't know. I check with my compatriots of my age bracket and everyone's like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I get doing four things at once. I always do that. Yeah. Right. Again, increasing complexity, like being able to handle keeping track of four things at once, which it seems like is the same as MTV, like being able to keep track of like three storylines and the concert video or whatever. 
And then pop-up video adds a whole nother layer. Right. <laughs> Whereas the, if that were the first MTV video, they would have been like, whoa, what is happening? <laughs> yeah. What's wrong with it? Why don't the band members notice these bubbles popping into frame <laughs> right. around them? The one thing that James Flynn himself pointed out, and he's an older gentleman, but really smart. He's the guy who figured this whole thing out. And he pointed out that he thinks this upcoming generation is actually, including us, is actually worse when it comes to the quantitative part in the sense that we're no longer reading as many books, we're no longer learning as many facts. And I think that's especially true probably today because you, what you mentioned, people who are going through school today have always had a phone have always had Google to remember yeah. the facts for them. So why would and they And I don't think to... that's funny. It's almost like the Flynn effect passing him by or in the sense that <laughs> I don't think that's true. I think the new generation is yet again a step more capable than us. They just do rely on technology for that capability. But so have we always. So has every generation more than the previous generation. If technology is going to fail us, we'll be fucked. But that's been true for many centuries now. Why would you deprive them of that? So I actually think it's the IQ test not testing our capabilities now properly. In life, 90% of the time, the kid will have a phone. Let's see how good they do on the IQ test with the phone. The super extreme version would be, most people aren't good at baking bread anymore. And Well, yeah, right, yeah, there's... Right, yeah, does that mean intelligence is leveling off? Like, yeah. No, just right. everyone offloaded that cognitive task to... No, uh, yeah, Googling you know, the rest of the world. It yeah. does often seem like all of human history is an attempt to offload every single task of life <laughs> until I guess ideally we can just sit still and eat. <laughs> well, like that's all we really want to do. Watch I, Netflix and chill. I don't know. Eating's a pain, man. Ugh. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> I interviewed a historian who, when I asked him if he thought history was progressive, like we were making progress, mm -hmm. he like scoffed at it. And <laughs> yeah. he pointed out that people in prehistory had to have been way more impressive than us because they invented the idea of religion. They invented the idea of shelter. Right. Like we came into existence, into history, and like shelter was a thing. Seagoing voyages <laughs> right. were a thing. And like they had to invent that over and over and over again because they didn't True. have the written record. So like when you take each one of them as an individual like yeah. unit of humanity, it's like they were having to do so much more work and yeah. like burn so many more mental calories. Like we still do some crazy shit though. Like a rocket to the moon is quite an effort. Oh I yeah, know. I don't I don't disagree. But it's hard to say, yeah, because well, Alex knows on the Kurt Vonda guys podcast, we talk a lot about how was there a like key time of technological advancement that was the happiest for everyone and yeah. we should have stopped? Are right. we past that point? Because his opinion is we're way past it. <laughs> sure, yeah. <laughs> but also, doesn't it always make sense? Like it's literally inevitable. If life is incredibly challenging, a lot of people die, but then the people that live have to be incredibly impressive, but any feat of impressiveness hopefully will make life easier for the next generation. So of course, like we're shittier. Isn't that the whole goal to make our descendants as lazy and shitty as possible <laughs> because everything is taken care of and they just have nice, peaceful lives? I guess there's no goal, but the well, only progress well. we could make seems to be towards 
Wally, basically. Right. Yeah, <laughs> and, it's tricky because yeah. if they also turn out to be more brilliant than us, that might be boring to them if we kind of human proof everything. You know, it's a, it's a tricky balance almost. Sure, but like, is it important to be a seafarer who like ruggedly struggles against life? Is that what's important? For everything to be as difficult as possible. No, yeah. I don't. Oh. I don't think so. Well, thank you. I was very worried but, there. <laughs> but one thing we've also talked about, not in respect to the Flynn effect, but I think it's an interesting thing to bring into this conversation, is that smart people are harder to convince when they're holding a wrong belief. They're harder to sway back to the truth than dumb people because. There's this guy, Michael Shermer, who has a book, Why People Believe Weird Things. And his quote is, smart people believe weird things because they're skilled at defending beliefs they arrived at for non-smart reasons. So if everyone is getting smarter and this generation is the smartest generation yet, aren't they going to also be like the most difficult to convince <laughs> they're wrong? And, Immune to logic. Uh, right. Yeah, I mean, I guess we keep reading stories about people being in more and more of a bubble, so maybe it's because they're getting smarter. Right. And so it's, that just bubbles you off a bit, because you're like, well, I'm very, very intelligent. Look at me operating my phone. I, so. <laughs> I think that's right. I, well, that leads to a future dystopia of brainiacs so smart that they live in a totally delusional, fabricated fantasy bubble of one <laughs> that they enjoy very much. The Matrix. And that's believable yeah. to me. That could right. be where we're headed for sure. It's kind of Rick from Rick and Morty. But like we are meat machines who only exist to make more meat machines and have our lives be pleasant. So that seems like a natural end if we're able to. Why wouldn't we end up just being we sit in a pod, the pod injects chemicals into our bloodstream that makes everything fine. And we're incredibly smart, but we don't have to do shit. Yeah. Right. I just wonder how fulfilling that would be. Well, that's what, uh, yeah, I never know. But well, what if they inject a drug that makes you feel fulfilled? <laughs> then, that's, and then, so then my, perfect. right, everyone's knee jerk is like, that's wrong somehow. But I can't actually figure out why it would be wrong. Other weird than all man. of my instincts, I guess it's fine. Right, it's weird. where you're like, like life yeah. should be real. <laughs> so the other argument that this guy who questioned progress. He's a history professor from Notre Dame, whose name I am drawing a blank on. But he was basically saying that it only seems like our culture is progressive in a positive, good direction, because it's sort of a self-fulfilling thing. Like if we had started out a culture that believed in reasoning and competition and science, had gone up against a culture that believes that birds are gods and that women should rule over men in a master-slave relationship, mm -hmm. and the bird god people defeated Won the war. them. Yeah. <laughs> then and like generation after generation, they just learned how to make better and better cages for their bird okay. gods or whatever. You know, that would seem to them as if they were making progress. Because sure. their values are... Where evolution has ensured that we're a bundle of like a billion different characteristics, and we always assume all of them have been instrumental to our success, but you can't sort out which ones are just side effects. And what's crazy is as we go along, all of our characteristics become more and more exaggerated and magnified, it seems. Because we're, as humans, we're becoming more and more complex texts almost, yeah. like more layered texts. That, yeah. that sort of balances it out, maybe? You hope. 
I hope. <laughs> this has been real depressing, Jack. <laughs> yeah. Just wanted to make sure you guys went away knowing that it's nothing less means a, It's anything. less of a passing of the torch and more of a just lighting the room on fire with the torch. <laughs> just <laughs> handing it off as it fizzles yeah, out. Yeah, flame first. Yeah. So... <laughs> there is no progress. I don't Why? know. I mean, I, I think it's an interesting question. No, I do we got 90 seconds. Give us the glimmer of hope here. <laughs> What's the save? Well, I do think the fact that we're not just getting quantitatively more knowledge, but we're getting better at thinking. And basically, the Flynn effect suggests that we're on to something because sure. it's self-perpetuating. If the bird god people had defeated us in that first war, it's not like they would get better and better at worshiping birds necessarily. Mm -hmm. Like they would just increase the number of birds they had. <laughs> I don't know. This is like one of those crazy, you stupid, philosophical, a novel, <laughs> philosophical premises that's pretty stupid. The fact that even though we can sit here and question oh, is everything good, means that there's hope that we could have altered right. it. So even knowledge of the Flynn effect gives us hope that the Flynn effect could be controlled someday. That's cool. Well, I also, I like to think that the internet is pretty revolutionary for how we as humans, at least in an implied way, share our values about those things, like in communicating with each other to an extent that we never have before hopefully we're implying to each other all the time, like, I'm a bird god person, I'm not, you know, but right. I'm like at least getting to know each other, if not agreeing. Yeah. You guys have literature? Because you're both talking about the bird gods. <laughs> the bird it sounds God very compelling are, to me. I mean, they, they make up like 60% of our demographics. I'm so. into it. Yeah, big bird, bird god. <laughs> and the other 40 are heathens. Right. That's really all I had. Any, nice. Anything you want to fucking say to me before? No, no. <laughs> Just piss on the torch as it's passed, if I could. <laughs> But I'm very dehydrated, so I can't. Today's episode is sponsored by Harry's. And just a reminder for you guys and gals out there that Father's Day is just a couple weeks away. This time of year has always been stressful for me because I never know what to get my dad. Thankfully, Harry's has the perfect solution. This year, Harry's is offering a special limited edition Father's Day set that comes with a storm gray razor handle, the manliest of colors, a chrome razor stand, foaming shave gel, three replacement blades, and a travel cover. And it goes without saying that the shave you get with Harry's is far and above those other guys. I've been shaving with Harry's for the past couple years now, and I won't go back. I can't go back. Harry's actually sent me two of their Father's Day sets last week, one for me and one that I'm going to give to my son to give to me. Uh, no, that I'm going to give to my dad for Father's Day. So hopefully he joins the 21st century and realizes how cheap and easy it is to buy from Harry's and how it's actually a better shave than the store-bought brands he's been using all these years. I feel like this is an ad mainly aimed at my dad. Like, just specifically him. Here's the special offer Harry's has for you guys. You can get $5 off any shave set, including the Father's Day set, at harrys.com slash cracked. This is for a limited time only, so head over to harrys.com slash cracked for $5 off any shave set. But really, get the Father's Day set. It's great. Support for today's show comes from Squarespace. Whether you need a portfolio to showcase your work, a store to sell your products and services, or a blog to share your ideas, Squarespace gives you everything you need to have a professional-looking website right from the start. 
They also get you started with a domain, which strengthens your brand, makes it easier for people to find you, get rid of the .blogspot.com from your site and be all profesh, like me. I say profesh all the time in the office, so I stay hip with those Gen Zers. Adding and arranging content to your site is a breeze. The site building tool is super intuitive. And if you ever have any problems or questions, Squarespace's award-winning 24-7 customer support can help you out with anything, no matter how technical or trivial. So make your next move and start your free trial at squarespace.com. Enter offer code C-R-A-C-K-E-D. That's offer code CRACK to get 10% off your first purchase. Again, that's squarespace.com and enter offer code CRACKED. Alex and I are joined by Daniel O'Brien. Woo! Woo What are we talking about? So back in 2007... Mm -hmm. I'd been running Cracked for about a year, didn't really know what I was doing, and it wasn't a very good website yet. And then we got a, uh, a submission from a Rutgers student of an article called Five Lessons Learned from Watching Die Hard. Like, we had been just unapologetically rewriting everybody's articles because we were paying uh, $0 <laughs> at the time, which I'm told in retrospect was not competitive and uh yeah is that a low amount yeah i don't know (laughs) apparently and uh so we weren't getting that much good stuff and then this article came in and it was perfect jay pinkerton who was working with me at the time on the site and i were like well we've got to get this guy working for us do you think he'll work for us for zero (laughs) dollars and uh but then jay left we hired somebody who didn't live in New York, so we had a little money left over, and we were able to bring you on as an intern. And then I'm just going to go through day by day your performance Great. since then. Uh, <laughs> I do want to say, uh, I, I mean, you clearly have a thing planned, but this is sort of my vibe on podcasts, is just talking whenever I feel like it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no preparation. Yeah, 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 yeah. You're only telling half the story. I submitted two articles. One was Five Lessons Learned from Watching Die Hard, and the other was a sketch titled The William H. Macy Institute of Hard Fucking that <laughs> was never discussed. I sent both of them. <laughs> I, in fact, sent them both in the same, like, oh. janky-ass non-word format that I sent them. Right. And Jay was like, I'm intrigued. Could you try resending this Die Hard one in a different format? Right. And I was like, do you want the other one in a different format? <laughs> Silence. <laughs> <laughs> And, and uh, then he closed no, that, that email account. format is <laughs> fine. Yeah, yeah. Our listeners should know we did not have an original video department at the time, nor access to William H. Macy. Right. So it was very misguided and wisely ignored. So you, you've been working here longer than anyone except me, I yeah. guess, or you've been working for Correct for longer. And uh, how old were you? You were a sophomore? 21? No, I think I was a, between my junior and senior year, yeah. Oh, okay. Oh, so you were an old man yeah. by that point in time. Uh, I've watched you grow up before me. No, that's not true. Uh, you've looked mostly the same, probably because I've seen you almost every day. So uh, it's hard to hard to notice, but you've sprouted up there at least a couple inches. Anything you wanted to talk about from our history of podcasts? I think you had mentioned the Simpsons Writers Room episode and the live shows. Those things you wanted to call out. Yeah, the the Simpsons episodes are going to be career highlights because any comedian or writer who's between my age and 20 years on either side of that, grew up loving The Simpsons and they got into writing because of The Simpsons and they're just so influential. So just being in a room with these guys, one of whom wrote my favorite Simpsons episode of all time, and talking to them was like a thrill that 
I wasn't even creative or confident enough to dream about. It's one of those things that, that you are aware that Simpsons writers are in the world, but you never imagine that you will meet or talk to them. That's an opportunity that I got through Jack and Cracked and the podcast, and I will always be grateful for it. And I'm stealing some very completely out of context, tongue in cheeks quotes that I'm going to keep forever. The first one we did with Mike, we ended by talking about how much we liked their work and were in awe of them. And they said, oh, it's likewise. We like Cracked too. And I said, uh, yeah, room full of the greats. And then Jeff <laughs> said, no one here but us legends. And it was like, a joke building on a joke, <laughs> right. but it's still like I could put, all right, got it. I'm going to write that down. No one here but us legends. That's right. And that goes on my gravestone. <laughs> in the Dana Gould podcast, I asked him how he learned to sort of remove his ego from writing and, and his ability to not be precious about things. And he talked about how it took decades of work. And I just mentioned how it seemed like it's always hard for writers to divorce themselves from ego. And he said, you should write for The Simpsons. And he was doing it in like boot camp sort of way like that'll knock it out of you but in my head I'm like Mr. Graining Dana Gould said you should write for the Simpsons to me in a room <laughs> right. into a microphone you have that recording forever yeah you can just pass that along yeah so the first episode we had Mike Reese and Jeff Martin on and they had reached out to us because of an episode of After Hours that I think Michael had written that yeah. was just loaded with these convoluted fan theories that were very interesting and Mike had brought us into the room to just mortify us by shooting every theory down. Yeah. Just very politely. Right, very, very politely. Like, he was like impressed by how far we had gone down the wrong path yeah. that we had traveled down. Like I, I guess this is something that you sometimes hear, but it was still nonetheless interesting, like how little thought they put into a lot of the like big theoretical yeah. comedy theory questions. It was just like, no, we were just trying to make the other people in the room laugh. Yeah, it definitely changed my approach to writing fiction after that first conversation. Before then, my whole sensibility was trying to do what I imagined The Simpsons writers were doing, which was looking at every single word and trying to see how it ties into their ever-expanding world and, like, bury things everywhere. There's just a bunch of guys trying to make each other laugh and make each joke funnier than the next one or as funny as the next one. I don't know. It, it's, it just it changed the energy that I bring to my writing. Writing that doesn't happen on crack because I don't write fiction screenplays or anything for crack, but just, like, in general, my mental approach to what I should be doing. And it's a, a really easy and obvious lesson. It shouldn't have taken me... 30 years and two Simpsons writers to learn just to write something that's good and funny that makes you and your friends laugh. But uh, that's what it took. Yeah, you're very hard-headed. <laughs> that, that was my next point. That was uh, just meeting Jeff Martin. Was He wrote the Homer's Barbershop Quartet episode, which is my all-time favorite Simpsons episode. And that was like like a perfect intersection for me as a lonely, weird kid who loved The Simpsons, which isn't a rare quality in a middle schooler really loved the Beatles which was slightly rare for for middle school because you know it's it's they're an old band when you're in middle school yeah loved musical theater which still is not cool and <laughs> loved barbershop quartets and acapella we were always singing in my family I joined an acapella group in college so those are all of my 12 year old Daniel's interests and then an episode of the Simpsons comes out featuring George Harrison a barbershop quartet and an easter egg reference to Les Mis from Broadway and I was like this is for me. Someone <laughs> finally wrote a thing just for me. Every bit of it. Yeah. Also, if you're listening at home, Daniel is wearing a Hamilton shirt right yeah, now. Yeah, yes, that's true. <laughs> <laughs>
I didn't recognize that quote, but it certainly is. Mm -hmm. The quote that Jack didn't recognize, by the way, is, my name is Hamilton, this is a musical. So I don't know (laughs) why you didn't recognize that. does actually have Alexander Hamilton at the bottom of it. So I really am not paying close enough attention to your shirts, as you always said. Yeah, it was so cool to hear uh, the joke that, like, apparently made Conan laugh harder than any other joke was, like, it flashed back to a younger version of Homer singing in his church choir. And Abe Simpson's inner monologue was like, yes, I knew that young Homer would. And it was like, he, for the for the purposes of anybody like witnessing this in a flashback, he was saying young Homer and that yeah. made Conan laugh like, the whole day. And Conan O'Brien's my comedy hero. So it was just really cool to hear. And also the fact that one of their favorite lines was, Alcohol, the cause and of and solution to all of life's problems. Yeah. Which is like the most t-shirted line of all. Yeah. But they were like, yeah, that was still pretty good. Like, yeah. Yeah. We're, yeah. we're not that was, we're not over it. I think Michael and I talked about that after the second podcast with Dana Gould. Because we noticed that Simpsons writers still take great joy quoting Simpsons lines. And not in a yes. way that like they're assholes about it. They just truly, genuinely love the show and respect how good the jokes are. <laughs> And just being on the outside of it, it was really thrilling to hear they all and we all agree that they aren't necessarily trying to write such intricate mythology and everything. But like you guys all had a pretty similar mindset in terms of what's enjoyable and what's funny and what's exciting fundamentally comedically, which was great. That's been one of the great joys of this podcast is getting to be in the room with comedians who aren't part of this team of comedians that I've like hand selected here at Cracked and just like... Immediately having the same vibe as them and immediately being like, oh, yeah. you're a great person. Too. Oh, you're just a guy. Yeah. Because yeah. okay. <laughs> you hear there's some new Showtime series. I'm assuming based on the preview going to portray comedians as like heroin addled. The yeah, I'm dying up here. I'm dying up here. Yeah. It's based on the book about, I think, the comedy store in Los Angeles in the 70s. And I watched the first like 25 minutes of it. And Sebastian Stan, I think, is a tremendous actor, but, like, the opening sequence is him brooding with a a six-pack of beer and smoking cigarettes on a balcony and, like, staring at smoggy Los Angeles, and he's, like, the main comedian guy. I was like, oh, no, you're not. (laughs) You're not what this is. You look like a rock star. Everything has the same... The same energy as Mad Men, like it's yeah. Don Draper, except instead of doing advertising, he like gets up and does comedy. Two men walk into a bar. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that was actually one that thing. Was that was a cool Draper. Yeah, <laughs> not bad. Yeah. Yeah, that was one thing that Jeff called out was that like the most inaccurate TV show he's ever seen was Studio 60 on the Sunset Strip because everybody was like so high stakes about the comedy. (laughs) They were like, no, this sketch is not right. We picked the wrong target for that satire. And he was like, that couldn't have been further from the truth. We would just sit there watching Brady Bunch reruns like in the writer's room and then make jokes about the Brady Bunch. I'll go to my grave as a defender of Studio 60, but that's a whole other podcast that I'll be launching once you're gone and can't stop me. (laughs) (laughs) I learned a lot about presidents and how terrifyingly psychotic Mm -hmm. they are from you. I'd say if if I had to put my finger on... One thing that wasn't just how to love again uh, that I learned from you, it would be uh, about presidents. The fact that Andrew Jackson 
murdered many people with his hands for fun and that lbj called his penis jumbo and showed it to like everyone yeah. that came into his office you know just like reporters and stuff right <laughs> it's one of my favorite things because it not only changes how you think about history but it also like changes how i think about the current news cycle and on today's timely editorial call people were like but trump can't be like that crazy, right? Like when he, they released the transcript where he's talking to Duarte and, uh, or is it Duterte? Oh, Duterte, yeah. Yeah, Duterte. The, the Philippine leader. Yeah, the Philippine yeah. leader and was like, hey, love what you're doing with the drug thing. That drug thing, you're killing it. I love it. We should do it. That's in for historical context. He's systematically murdering yeah. lots and lots of people, he's right? He's genociding yeah. drugs. He's he quite literally killing it. Yeah, he's yeah. quite literally. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> there is a transcript of Trump being like, that's aces, man. You're doing you're doing great work with the drug thing in particular. And people like couldn't get their mind around that somebody yeah. would be they were like, ah, he was probably joking. And other people were like, no, I think he probably didn't really know what Duterte was doing. And yeah. so Mac came in, who was from a, a part of the country where a lot of people vote red. And he was like, no, like a lot of people in my town, that would be their opinion that, oh, meth is like tearing this town apart. We should take all the meth heads and in the back yeah. alley and shoot them in the head. And that's Trump's base. So it's a, I don't know. This is one person in a long line of complete psychopaths, I guess. Yeah. I've already started writing the President Trump chapter of my How to Fight Presidents book because nice. the plan is to always update that book whenever a president passes away. And when I say writing, I'm in the, the same way that I've approached every chapter of that book, which is just a complete deep dive into the person's life and reading and viewing everything I can consume. It's real bad. It's, it's <laughs> really? such a depressing thing. I feel like the first 9,000 words of the chapter will be like, this wasn't the plan. This wasn't why I got into loving presidents. <laughs> right. It was never supposed to be like this. <laughs> How does he compare just like his, his life just in general? I mean, I think you see a lot of the same ego and ambition. And I think there's more tragedy and sadness in his childhood than I gave it credit for that sort of sets him on this almost Mystic River sleeper's path where he had a really stern father that just didn't love him and was not shy about making that clear. And he digged out of school one day with his buddy to go buy switchblade knives because he really liked the musical West Side Story and he thought the Jets uh -huh. and Sharks were so cool with their knives and he wanted to be like that with his buddy. And for that, his father sent him to military school where he was just Jesus. miserable. And like Ugh. skipping school and buying a knife is a 14-year-old kid thing to do. And I'm sure there's still some personality things that were already in him that make him bad and toxic, but... That's a tough consequence at 14 years old when you've already got a father who hates you and then he just like banishes you. And meanwhile, his brother, whom he looked up to for a while, had all these struggles with alcoholism. And it just seemed like here's a, a guy who is not surrounded by love and had no one to teach him the amount of love that he should have and accept in his life. And these are some of the steps that lead us to this man. And it's yeah. Bummer. If nothing else, it kind of humanizes him to me, knowing that West Side Story was like his Star Wars. You know, right. like, just yeah. the like I'd go out in the yard and a stick as my lightsaber. Right, you know? right. Like, that, <laughs> that was, was my dad's Star Wars. That was his favorite movie growing up. West Side, West Story? West Side Story. Yeah. Oh wow, loved yeah. it. And he grew up in the city, so that must have been like a pretty accurate movie or something. Yeah. He still carries a switchblade to yeah. this day. <laughs> it's funny you said it humanizes Trump, but like 
that whole story, I was just picturing like a child with Trump's hair yeah. in, in like an oversized suit. Oversized suit. I just can't do it. <laughs> Got his little switchblade and he's just walking down the street and his dad sent him to military school. Yeah. In my head, the only way he has changed over time is size. It's yeah. just been an eight. That's the <laughs> right. only factor in this growth. <laughs> just got taller. That We're going to put it. him in. He's dressed in the same suit, too. Like, it's this, It's still the one that's too big now because yeah. right. they put on the suit for the size that he will eventually be. Right. <laughs> right at birth. And he's just been slowly growing into it. Yeah. We always talk about how he's such a big boy. And <laughs> that's definitely something that, like, he, he yearns to hear. Yeah. Is that he's the biggest boy. And such a big Time, boy. Time's boy of the year. Yeah. <laughs> Time's big boy of the year. A few other things that I've learned about him in this early research. One of them, that was my favorite thing, which is probably not even going to go into the book, but it's, he's told the story over and over again about how he, he punched a music teacher or gave him a black eye because he didn't think the teacher was very good at music. And it's one of those like, yeah, I guess I was kind of a punk kid, but also look how tough mm. and big I was. And on his deathbed, the music teacher was like, that little shit didn't do that, and died. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's like, I kicked his ass. <laughs> Is there a president he reminds you most of? I, for people who don't know, who are listening to my last episode as their first episode of the Crack Podcast, uh, good choice. Daniel wrote a book called How to Fight Presidents that required him to research every president's life. I think you ma majored in presidents at college. Uh, no. Oh. <laughs> I, I checked, I, but it I wasn't, wasn't that, available to yeah, me. Yeah, <laughs> I don't think that's an actual major, but is there a president who he reminds you of I from mean, history? I'll, I'll just end up biting off Dana Gould because he had the best answers for this, that it's stupid Nixon and graceless uh, Lyndon Johnson, because Lyndon Johnson had that same like mix of folksy charm and tough when I need to be, and like very much treating people like adversaries and like bullying them. He was just much better at it, and his thing was civil rights. And President Trump has that same sort of vibe where he's got the bully thing going on, and he's got the, I'm going to intimidate people with my size and with the confidence with which I say things. But he's just much dumber, and his causes are way worse, and he's just much more easy to manipulate. And he's also got all of Nixon's sociopathy and, and, right. and uh, mania. Yeah. That was a question that came up on today's call also. Do you think he's a dumb person? Like, he seems to be smart at things that will get him more attention, maybe. Mm -hmm. He's, like, calculating in that way. Like, the thing I heard about him was that ever since the Obama diss track at the White House Correspondents' Dinner, he was doing nothing but, like, sitting in a dark room listening to right-wing talk radio and mm -hmm. just, like, memorizing and, like, just absorbing every single talking point and that's what like he came out as like the rocky of yeah. you know he had just like trained his ass off on like every single thing that mattered to the type of people who listen to right wing yeah. talk radio i mean that makes total sense to me i don't think he's smart in the way that he can adapt anything about his personality or methodology to make the washington system work for him you can't stick him anywhere and he can look at all of the things available to him and like i got it i know how to how to macgyver this shit because we're just seeing that with his inability to get anything done in his first nine thousand days i do think he understands people which is a strange thing for me to think about a guy who i think completely lacks empathy because i grew up in new jersey woo, and uh <laughs> my dad worked in new york for amtrak and i just met a lot of older new york new jersey 
tough guys, you know, like, like mm-hmm. I'm putting tough guys in quotes for listeners, but guys who like really liked Godfather and Goodfellas and just like that whole like, yo, New York vibe, very blue collar, very cool guys, all of them. And I see a lot of that in President Trump. It's just this like tough guy who's sort of posing, but also has charm and I'm fully convinced that if he was not mad or tired, and we, the two of us, were just in a room, he could probably get me to do what he wants. Like, I, I, right. I think if, if he just, like, sat me down and either bullied or, like, charmed me into leaving that room being like, all right, he's a pretty sharp guy. I get it. Like, he just, right. he just carries that vibe That's a, That's what you hear people say about being in a room with him is that he seems totally different from yeah. he do, how he does in public and also that he, like, seems like a more thoughtful person. Yeah. Which makes sense because that's the more acceptable way to be in a room with someone. You couldn't right. be like like <laughs> ram, ranting and like, yeah. you know, and talking as if you were talking to a... Some of the stuff that he's doing now, we'll get word that he called someone somewhere out of the blue and was like, hey, I heard you're doing this thing and uh, you're doing a really good job. And like sometimes it's a genocidal president. <laughs> sometimes it's someone else in his administration also right. doing something bad. Right. But that's true of... Every job he's had, everyone who worked for him has said that, like, he knew their names, he knew their families, and if he heard someone was did a good job on something, he was like, it's me, the guy who runs this place, and, and I noticed you, and you did a good job. And that's just, like, good boss stuff. Yeah, good boss stuff. Yeah. But I don't like him, and I don't want him to be president. Yeah. <laughs> no, I get that. You're, you're pointing out stuff that I didn't do for you as a boss that you... Now it's too late. No, I get it. Yeah, it feels like he can't adapt his own personality. Like, he's a victim of his own personality, his own, basically, personality disorder. And it's interesting that you say that he's good with people, because Dana Gould's read was that he can't conceive of other human beings as, like, existing, which doesn't rule out his ability to be good at manipulating people because, you know, that's how sociopaths and psychopaths view other people as, as like sort of chess pieces to move around. The really interesting thing you said about him being very similar to like blue collar tough guys, which are often the guys that are most respected in blue collar circles. Yeah. We're going to talk to Jason. Jason's chosen topic for his last conversation is a class and just how much more sense Trump makes as a person who is specifically appealing to working class people yeah. of all types. A thousand percent. I would describe Jersey upbringing as lower middle class. Certainly not the devastating circumstances that I hear when Mac and Jason talk about meth and industries leaving and destroying towns and random fathers stealing turkeys. Um, <laughs> but still not, we weren't like a wealthy upper middle class sure. type of vibe. And a lot of the rhetoric that President Trump has been preaching for nine and a half years, whenever this campaign started, is the kind of thing that would really resonate with the older people that were around when I was a kid. And this is the people who feel like there are too many drugs. And here's this common sense guy who's just like, we're going to get rid of the drug people. We're going to be tough around it. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pass laws, and then there'll be no more drugs. And it's like, hey, that's good. This guy's making yeah. Some, yeah. some real sense. <laughs> yeah, there's an article on Slate Star Codex, I think it's called. But it's it's this blog by this psychologist that Jason turned me on to called I Can Tolerate Anything But The Out Group is the name of this article. And he just wrote about how he, he used the analogy of like dark matter where it's entirely possible that there is a dark matter universe all around us. You live in dark matter Times Square and don't even mm-hmm. realize it. And it's like 
busy with all these dark matter people and he was saying that, dark like, matter Times square all those fucking tourists right yeah exactly <laughs> and he was saying that he feels like when he like finds out that half the country is creationist in america and almost half doesn't believe in gay marriage and you know he looked around and realized oh i live in a county that has traditionally voted red and basically he realized like how much America is defined and like controlled by class systems mm -hmm. basically. And like he travels exclusively in circles of people who are this blue tribe that he was like outlining as, you know, people who refer to football as sports ball and are disgusted by patriotic jingoism and, I was really hoping that was going Patriot fans. And just tell Tom Brady. Yeah. Just go off on Bill Belichick for the next five minutes. But just how completely different, but like right on top of each other, these two groups are. And I do think that that's a great thing about Cracked that I think is really valuable and is certainly going to be here after I go is that we have diversity in that respect. And like a lot of people who grew up not in this blue bubble that is exclusively people who hold all the same beliefs, you know, half yeah. of the country are people who hold diametrically opposed beliefs and, and hate those people. Yeah. And a lot of the places that I read seem to be made up almost entirely of the people who occupy that universe instead of the antimatter one. Mm -hmm. So don't ever change is, is how I'm going to leave it and stay cool. And, uh, all right. Uh, bye, I guess. <laughs> and I'll never see you again. Cool. Thanks, man. Right. Thank you. All right. So we are joined in studio by Soren. And I don't think I ever got the pronunciation on this. Right? It's good. It's pretty good. Uh, so far, we're a good dismount. Bow, I want to see how you do the landing. Bowie. Oh, rough. Bowie. Yeah, that's right. Bowie. Uh, we, were, we were talking about routing jokes from the show the other day. How did that not come up? Oh, yeah. Such a routing joke. Yeah. It's great. And Soren. <laughs> <laughs> It was a weird uh, dynamic because every time that we do a live podcast, you introduce all the accolades of everybody else, then you go, and Soren. And there was an inverse relationship of how little you gave a shit and how much I flaunted in front right. of the audience. Yeah. I like, gave big bows <laughs> right. and walked to each side of the stage. Very dramatic. <laughs> well, unfortunately, the audience would also give you a, a huge response. <laughs> so really <laughs> undercut my, my joke. Um, yeah, that was always a good thing is that I always knew I could shit on Soren because he was the one person who was like secure enough to, to take, take it. it. <laughs> I guess I shouldn't say the one person because that makes it seem like everybody else on the, on the staff is an Very insecure fragile. mess. But... When in reality, it's just me. Uh. <laughs> you're you're among the more sturdy people I've met. I, I'm not worried about you falling to pieces. Thanks, man. Um, I like that on my tombstone. He yeah. was sturdy. <laughs> he was sturdy. Good stock. Had a wide base. Uh, it's Soren Bowie. Structurally sound. Yeah. Like yesterday, I was walking around. Uh, Harry's sent a bunch of razors to us, and I went and like handed them out to everybody. And then like I, I went right next to Soren, Dan, and Cody. And I was like, to Dan and Cody, I was like, oh, you guys can grow beards, right? <laughs> and gave them each razors. And Soren was like the one person who didn't get one. It was because, a good bit. Yeah. It was, it was a really good, good bit. I really fucking got you, man. <laughs> but I knew you could take it. 
one of the reasons you're you're such a sturdy fellow is uh, your upbringing. That's something that we talked about in an episode that has completely disappeared from the internet or something. <laughs> we can't figure out. Like, I wanted to listen to uh, the episodes we were going to be referring back to for preparation for this. And, like, I remember having the conversation. So the conversation was about, like, weird things that we didn't know were weird because we grew up around them. And Soren's conversation was about the fact that he grew up in this town in Colorado around some very strange things I'll let you talk about, but we can't find it anywhere. Like we have the whole archive of episodes. Engineer Brett has an encyclopedic knowledge of all episodes to the point that I can usually be like, hey, we've never made this point about Star Wars, right? And he'll immediately fire back an answer. And he was like, I don't know what happened to that. (laughs) Yeah, I even looked through my emails because I was like, there are words in there that I know that I used like axe. (laughs) <laughs> and uh, I searched Axe through <laughs> Gmail and also on my hard drive, and I couldn't find anything. Yeah, so I couldn't. It just has disappeared from everything. But yeah, I grew up in a, a small mountain town called Carbondale that was originally a mining town, obviously, <laughs> with a name like that. And right. they did coal, and then it became sort of an agrarian town. But it's in within really close proximity to Aspen. So there was this weird juxtaposition of people who were ranchers or farmers, and then these people who just lived there and worked in Aspen. So like these people who were plugged into the cultural hub. But it was a weird place to live because, and I didn't know it at the time, but we'd have an annual festival each year. And one of the things that they did that annual festival was a wood chopping contest, but it had these rules to it. Like you had to run through the crowd to get from one block to the other. And so people are just running through crowds with an ax. And that seemed perfectly normal to me when I was young. And then... A lot of my friends from back home that I grew up with are now, I mean, at this point, they're retired from it, but they competed in the X Games. They were all sponsored skiers, snowboarders, kayakers. And I was the outcast. I was like the guy who wasn't really good at any of those things. You were things. like the nerdy bookish type. Right. And they're like, well, what do, what do we do with this guy? Right. So for context, Soren will just like jump off of something and like do a flip randomly. Yeah. And we just assumed he was like the extremely acrobatic weird person from his group of friends and it's like no he was the least of that like among his friends i always felt like i wasn't good enough at anything athletic and i was like this is it's just not for me and then i came to los angeles (laughs) i was like ah you know what i think i might be an athlete i think i I I." along with that came sort of a darker side which was that there was like the looming threat of death all the time People that I knew or grew up with, they died in avalanches or they died in in car accidents or on like the icy, windy roads. They died in longboarding accidents. There's a weird reaching out towards death (laughs) when when you grow up in that community because it's basically proving how much you can cheat death. That's what feels good. It's how big you can go off of a tabletop. It's how fast you can go. And that doesn't always work out. Eventually that (laughs) catches up with you. You don't say. (laughs) Going through your teenage years, just always trying to cheat death well Doesn't my work out yeah my dad was on mountain rescue my mom worked at an er there so people would come in in vr with ice picks in their head because they had been out climbing and something had gone wrong they'd fallen or whatever yeah. my dad lost a friend when he was really young to rock climbing and then their friends from their wedding we went through their wedding album before i got married and they were like oh yeah he's i mean he's dead now he's dead and they were all oh. no one of these people died of heart attacks right <laughs> he died in a fiery explosion he died right. in a yeah just all spectacular ways. It's amazing that the guys running with axes through the festival is not in this half of the talk about right. the town. It's in the front half. <laughs> yeah. That's amazing. Yeah. So and weren't guess... they drinking? 
Yeah, so everybody's drunk at this. There's um, <laughs> They bury a pig months in advance, and they cook it underground, and then they bring it up. And there are all kinds of different events there, but one of them is, yeah, there's a, a wood chopping thing. And I, I vaguely remember all the men dressing up in dresses for it. Hmm. Uh, I don't know why. I don't remember what that addition was to it. But there was really no delineation between the crowd and the event. So they're just running through people with a giant axe chopping wood. And drunk. Yeah. Yeah. Now, you said that they would bury a pig a month in advance and cook it underground. In Colorado, are there just people underground that like cook things for you? Because that <laughs> is think, also not true of where I, I grew up. I think they put it on coals oh, okay. uh, down there and All it right. just slowly cooks underground for a while. So that was not wow. my experience. You couldn't just put something in the ground. And yeah, it's a minor it community. Up. The <laughs> miners decide they wanted to descend underneath right. the earth and live a separate life. Right. And we just give them a pig once a year to cook for us. <laughs> it was a, a strange awakening to come to a big city and realize how many of the things that I had grown up with weren't completely normal. And there was nobody along the way who was ever saying that. You right. know, like my parents didn't grow up there. They grew up in, my mom grew up in Philadelphia and my dad grew up in Omaha, Nebraska, which are cities. Right. And they were never like, oh, by the way, not everybody knows somebody who has been killed in an avalanche. Right. <laughs> I think I remember finding that so amazing that like avalanches are a looming threat. Like you probably know somebody who's died in an avalanche if you grew up in Colorado and they named their hockey team the after avalanche. that. Yeah, I know. Yeah. It's crazy. <laughs> it's like, I don't think we yeah. Them and the Carolina Hurricanes, shocking to me. Right. But hurricanes actively destroy that state frequently. I don't know how they did that. They're, oh, I didn't even realize the, that's what they were called. Yeah. The Canes, baby. Yeah, I guess Miami is the same one. Yeah. I didn't ever think about that either. That is a weird thing yeah. to do, though. Whatever does the most detriment to your state, let's name the team after right. that. Yeah. Yeah, my grandparents, because my grandparents are out there, and they would talk about Hurricane Bertha ravaging North Carolina and seeing a North Carolina Hurricanes game like within weeks of each other. Like you don't, they, it, what, they didn't bump on it at all. They yeah, you, like, well, yeah, you, you have know. to qualify which hurricanes you're talking <laughs> right. about. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, I wanted to talk about it again. I wanted to bring it up again because now, Jack, you and I both have children. And what? Yeah, oh. yeah. <laughs> My parents seemed like they were really careful about what sort of world they exposed me to. And then I had to sort of branch out from that once I got old enough. And I was wondering if you're planning to do that with your child at all, if you have like a sense of what you're willing to expose your kid to, and if you're going to try and synthetically create some sort of situation like that. Like Todd Marinovich, for instance. Do you know who that well, is? No. Oh, oh, the, yeah. Mitch Marinovich created... Player. No, the football player. Uh, Mitch Marinovich created the Combine, and oh, he had right. a son, Todd Marinovich, who he, from birth, decided this kid's going to be a quarterback. And basically structured this kid's entire life around becoming a quarterback. And he was outstanding. He was head and shoulders above everybody else who he competed with and then went away to college at USC and went insane. Oh, really? Yeah, oh. went absolutely crazy. He played like on drugs? Yeah, yeah did a lot of cocaine, just realized that he could have McDonald's even, that there oh, were wow. things that he wasn't allowed to touch before. And he was having sex, he was, ha he was doing cocaine, and then he played for the Raiders for two years, and that was it. That was the end of his career. Marinovich. So, I mean, that is my plan, actually, like, <laughs> word for word almost. And when you ask about exposure to stuff, do you mean like stuff in this region or do you mean like just stuff in the wider world? I guess or, both. Uh, yeah. yeah. I mean, it's hard in L.A., I think. I don't know too many kids who grew up their whole life in L.A. that like weren't exposed to every drug by the time they graduated from high school. Right. Whereas like the idea that people did 
cocaine to me. Even when I graduated college, I was like, really? Around here? Like young people even? I thought that only happened in like 80s movies or something. So I don't know. That's a weird thing. Like as of right now, my wife and I are planning on raising our son in the Los Angeles area. And yeah, I, I need to get a lot of advice from people who've had kids in L.A. who have like turned out. Brett, did you grow it, up in L.A.? I, as someone who grew up in L.A., yes, I, I knew about drugs. You, you seem fairly well adjusted. Though. I do. I yeah. knew about drugs well, don't too, get, but only don't from get movies. Heidi about it. <laughs> yeah, it was, yeah. yeah, Brett's uh, really getting ahead on him. The town know? I'm from uh, is called Oak Park, but they called it. Wait for it, Coke Park. Oh, oh, cute. Is that what I was waiting for? <laughs> yeah. Okay. Um, yes, exposure to drugs. That was not a huge deal. I don't think I even knew. I don't think I knew what the smell of marijuana was until I was almost out of high school. Yeah. But there are also byproducts of that too, like in my upbringing that I would have changed, which is. I didn't know a single black person growing up. Yeah. No, I, that shows on a, on a regular basis. <laughs> it's truly... Speaking uh, of running jokes, uh, <laughs> joking. That. Just because we had that conversation made me realize how much you get to play God, essentially, with your kid. You get to decide what they're going to be exposed to. I mean, before they start getting friends and things like that, and, mm. and they understand the value of a social circle, then you're the one who's in charge of, like, what they deem valuable, what they think is fun. And that's a lot of pressure. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, so I'm planning to dog tooth my kids. I don't know if you've seen that movie. Yeah. Dog tooth. Oh, yeah. Yeah, so I'm planning uh, to create a completely insulated world wherein they think that the planes going overhead are just toys because they don't get the uh, <laughs> dog tooth is a Greek film by the guy who made the lobster that is just insane. It's about a father who like keeps his kids in his house they're never allowed to leave the property and they think that planes going overhead are like the size of toy planes because they don't get how distance perspective works. yeah yeah i'm not planning on doing that but uh will you let your kid play football if he wants to no i don't yeah. think so what? oh do you mean football <laughs> uh, because i will i'm such a blue tribe twerp uh, <laughs> and that that's just based on having known somebody in college who had suffered enough concussions that I think he was pretty fucked up by the time he got to playing wow. college football. Even from that yeah. that age. Wow. Like he, he got a concussion I think our freshman or sophomore year and was like knocked out cold immediately for like a few minutes. Yeah. Which the human brain mm. is not supposed it's to not do good. that. Yeah. yeah. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> Why you are planning on? No, well I, well, I don't think I have to worry about it. He's very small. He's like in the. <laughs> he's like, you know what I could do? And I've, I've, my brother and I have joked about this, but it makes a lot of sense. Is you raise your kid from a very early age to think punting is the coolest thing in the world and raise <laughs> right. them to be a punter. Right. right. Your shelf life is much longer. And you almost never get touched. And you never have to make a tackle except occasionally. And no one really expects you to anyway. And it's such a great gig. There's no pressure on punting either. You don't have to like win the game with a punt. The Colquitt brothers are a really good example from the Chiefs and the Broncos. I feel like I assume you've two... acquired posters of both of them already. <laughs> right. Those the two room. just go I'm to sure. games and you're like, woo! Every time there's a punt, that's the only time you cheer. Their dad must have from an early age. It could have been their mom. I don't know. But I assume it's their dad from an early age. Must have just been constantly dissuading them from the sexiness and the and the allure of being a, a wide receiver or right, a quarterback. Right. And they're like, no, 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 that's not where it's at. Right. You guys want to be punters. Look how much further and higher <laughs> the ball goes when they do it. Did I, did I just see you guys throwing the ball out here? <laughs> yeah, I feel like even then, being the 
punter would would put you in a tough position because then you're like socially hanging out with people who value different things that's than you, true maybe. yeah that's i mean even now it's all hypothetical for me because my son is a year and a half but i worry about the people he will hang out with and like the circles that he runs in and it doesn't matter what his interests are there's toxicity everywhere there are people who poison the well <laughs> in pretty much every field and i guess the idea is that you just build a strong enough foundation that that stuff washes off their back but it didn't for me <laughs> like, right I, yeah, I'm having a hard time figuring out like how overprotective parents are these days and how much that is a result of the news media and the fact that we're more insulated from our neighbors now. And so because you don't know your neighbors, the news media shows all these stories about like strangers kidnapping kids and everybody thinks like there's danger all around them when the world has actually gotten safer. And so logically speaking, I think, well, I should then let my son have as much freedom as I had, which I, by the time I was like eight or nine years old, I was like riding my bike across town, like just yeah. because my parents, the only thing I had to tell my parents was I'm going to ride bikes. And that was enough. I don't know what they thought I was doing, but I would be all the way across town. I would like go and like walk through the halls of my school when it was closed and yeah. stuff and like thought that was like the coolest thing. I burned a few places down. Yeah, of course. You're yeah. a little boy. Yeah. Every little boy has burned something to the ground. Right. We would go sledding in the middle of the night when I was a kid because I lived in a, an actual log cabin. Like it looks like Lincoln Logs and it was out in the middle of the woods. And if I had friends over, if there was a moon out, we'd be like, let's go sledding. And we would just leave in the middle of the night to go out into the woods and go sledding. It seems crazy now that you're yeah. like, kids are allowed to just, it's like, oh, it's 1130 and it's, 14 below outside. All right, have fun. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Did you bring flashlights too or something? Just like the moon was an yeah, adequate quantity of, of light? Off the snow, yeah. Oh. Off the snow, it stays pretty light. So you can see outlines of everything. You can see trees and things like that. Wow. You do stay pretty low in the sled just in case, but yeah, you can. <laughs> we used to do that in the middle of the night if it was like a fresh snow and we we're like, oh yeah, I know the driveway or I know this hill in the like out by this meadow that it's going to have a lot of snow on it. You're like, yeah, it's, this is the time to go. I grew up in the Chicago suburbs and I think we had too much light pollution for me to view the moon as an adequate source of light at all. I was just like, oh, it's shiny, but obviously I'm not going to see by it or nothing. Right. Like, yeah, you never see a moon shadow <laughs> in, in a city. I thought yeah. you were going to say view the moon full stop. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I was like, wow, man. I think that might have something to do with your vision. <laughs> but yeah, I think about that now with my son growing up, even like what daycare you put them in, what toys I give him. Like I want to be a really woke dude in 2017 too. So I'm like, do you want a doll? And he just nods to everything. So I'm like, he wants a doll. I'm getting him a doll. <laughs> right. Do you want, and they're like, I'll look at Amazon dolls with him and be like, which doll do you want? Right. <laughs> he doesn't know. He doesn't have preferences yet. Yeah. But I'm just trying to give him as many of the things that I know aren't total poison right off the bat and hope that that sets the foundation right, that when things are a little bit more nebulous, that he makes the right decision. But man, I just, I don't trust him. <laughs> yeah. I think my parents were pretty hands off, but like I have comfort in knowing that I was like very dumb for the first seven years of my life. Yeah. Like I was like, people were like, oh man, this kid's not going <laughs> to make it. Well, maybe he'll uh, be a welder or something. <laughs> that was like the highest hopes they had. And Some welder just threw yeah. off his headphones. Was like, and then, <laughs> right. This podcast. And then like when I started writing, actually figuring out how to write, that's when like my brain started working. It started but, to click. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. 
Yeah, I didn't speak till I was two. Really? My, yeah, my mom was like, I don't know what <laughs> oh, dear. this one. Yeah, <laughs> I think we messed up by having two of these kids because <laughs> right. the oldest one does all the talking, the youngest one doesn't think he has to, and he, right. he's just gonna be mute. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I was, um, I was pretty dumb. So, yeah, and there's uh, also a weird a moment in boys' lives. May, it might be true of girls as well, but I don't have any basis for comparison. Uh, <laughs> but in boys' lives, when they get to be about 13 to 18, everything that you do is is to remind yourself that you can't be hurt. <laughs> At least it felt like to me. That is specific to you, I believe. <laughs> it was... I was a coward. I was more along the jack lines. Yeah, yeah, oh, really? Was, yeah, yeah. Driving very, very fast. But or... I, I knew I knew lots of guys who were like that. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's, I, I think that it's maybe some... I mean, it's probably my fault. But if it wasn't my fault, then it would be some holdout from culture where, like, that's the age where you have to fight. And the more that you believe that you're invincible during that time, the better chance you have of staying alive if you have to fight. And... We don't have to anymore, but there's still something inside of, I think, a lot of young boys that makes them think, the things that I'm most afraid of, that's what I'm going to steer towards. Because if I get control of them and if I can do them, then I won't be afraid anymore. It's like, that's why I did rock climbing when I was young. It's like heights are really bad. And then once you can trust your hands or you trust your ability to scale rock, you're like, oh, I conquered it. This thing can't hurt me anymore. I remember specifically having the thought, man, I hate basketball. I want to quit basketball. But like every girl that I have a crush on, like dates a basketball player. So like I'm not quitting basketball. That's the the, the other element, I guess. It wasn't just to remind yourself you're invincible. It was also because girls like it. Right. And that's why you did a lot of I feel like that's what people do also instead of fight to the death. Is do stuff for girls? No, just play sports. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> right. Or, or I guess act, depending on what kind of girl you're into. <laughs> um, if you're going to be an actor, learn how to massage early on because you're going to be in a lot of trains backstage right. where yeah. you have to massage each other's shoulders. Right. Just saying it right now, boys. <laughs> figure it out. Learn how to braid hair. <laughs> you will be useful. Zip, zip, zap, basic improv games. Right. There's a lot to pick up. <laughs> right. That's always like every actor's story, which... I feel like is a way that actors like try to be like, hey, I'm straight, you guys, because like acting is considered. Maybe this was only during the 90s, but like when I was growing up and still watched like Letterman and Conan, like all those things, every time they would have an actor on and like be like, so how'd you get into acting? They would always be like, well, you know, I was in high school and like I twisted my ankle so I couldn't play sports and and then I noticed that like all the girls hung out with like the drama stuff so that's where I went and it's like no we get it you're straight Pierce Brosnan right yeah uh, it's okay to like acting right Pierce. which now upon further <laughs> reflection I realized that like they ask you backstage what you want to talk about. So he was like, ask me why I got into acting. And then like went out there and was like, because I'm into chicks. Right. They pulled me off the front lines. Right. In fact, does anybody in this audience know any girls? <laughs> I got into acting when I was young. And it was probably a holdout from like, my friends were, they could grind rails and hit tabletops. on. on I thought like, you said you weren't into drugs. <laughs> on grind rails uh, <laughs> oh that's right yeah. yeah that's when you're on skis or snowboard just rail sliding and they were good at that kind of thing that seemed very hard to me and so I was like you know what I'm actually pretty good at pretending to cry <laughs> <laughs> how do I use that skill <laughs> that's how you both got out of trying to grind rails and also <laughs> yeah. into acting you are a good actor and uh, you're also a great Script writer, uh, I, t- I talked about 
the first time I found out about Dan, I should say that the first time I found out about Soren was I got like this pit of dread in my stomach because it was like someone at our parent company at the time being like, hey, there's this guy who works for a different website within our parent company who is really funny. And that usually <laughs> meant like somebody like who knew some jokes or something. Right, they'd memorize some jokes that they'd heard. Right, yeah. and then you wrote one of the best comedy sketch screenplays that I've ever read, and I was like, oh, okay. I guess he's all right. Thanks, Jack. I'll figure out how to say his first name. Um, <laughs> I'll tell you now, because you're leaving and I can be as candid as I want. Fucking hated I, you. I was fully aware of how that looks, because <laughs> throughout... Oh, I'm sure. In college and everything, being part of a group, like a sketch group or something like that, that other people want to be a part of. There's so many people here like, I, I mean, you're just, you have such a clear ceiling and I don't, I don't know how to tell somebody that. Those are the only people you get introduced to. Right. And while you can weed out a lot of really bad people that way, there probably are a couple of nuggets in there that you'd never get to. And it's really hard if you feel like you're one of those nuggets because then you're like, I don't have any other way to do this. So I'm just going to like weasel my way in and it doesn't feel good right now, but Eventually, this will be fine. <laughs> yeah. Well, you were talented, so it was like nobody was under the impression that you were weaseling your way in like almost immediately after we saw your work. After we saw you work, man. <laughs> we you saw you Juggling, dance. doing... Grinding rails. Grinding rails. The Onion has an actual policy that they won't let any employee that's not one of their writers apply for a job if they like detect even the faintest hint that they have comedy writing aspirations because they just like don't want to fucking deal with it yeah and like they don't want them to like be the funny guy around the office and somebody stuff. who's on all the right. time yeah. yeah they just want somebody who's like humorless and like just like about like selling shit or something like that yeah which, i mean that makes a lot of sense yeah <laughs> a lot of our programmers and stuff got into it before who like randomly were like working at demand and stuff and yeah. i think our head programmer simon is just like this dude is just like not into cracked like i don't think he'd visit our site because yeah. he loves it but he's just like really good at the programming side of yeah, things. yeah i would say for anyone who's looking for a job and like they have a passion that they feel really good about. Learn another thing too. Not because you want that to fall back on, but because you want your passion to look secondary. It's people are so much more comforted by the fact that when you're introduced to them and they're like, oh yeah, this guy's really funny. Does he do comedy? No, no, no. He's a... Uh, he, magician. Yeah, he's a magician. She's like, right. what? <laughs> <laughs> when people discover that talent on their own, it means way more than when you force it in their face. <laughs> We've had people who have worked on our backend development team who are very, very funny people. But because that wasn't their primary interest, you're so much more at ease with them. And it's so much easier yeah, to get a true. job like that when yeah, you're, yeah. you feel like you can't feel the desperation in what they're doing. Somebody who's on all the time and really like trying to work a relationship with you to figure out how to get a job with you yeah. is so rough. I can think of so many encounters where my mom was like, you know, Eleanor is out there in LA right now and right. she's trying to be an actress. Will you go have coffee with her? And it's like, oh, okay. And then like just talking to this person, you can see that they think this is an interview. Right. It's like, yeah, I yeah, don't yeah, want to yeah. do this. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Tell me something else that you're interested in. <laughs> and I think there have been employees at various times who held secret ambitions of like doing something in comedy, but like wouldn't say that out loud. Mm -hmm. And they would just like kind of get angrier and angrier as their employment. Yeah. No, that's interesting. Yeah, yeah. I can see that happening too. Yeah. Yeah. I guess it's a double-edged sword. I guess there's really no, other than let it happen in its own time. If you're talented enough, people will notice it and they'll start 
asking yeah. you to do more. Just be really extremely talented, like Soren, <laughs> and also like really good looking and at ease with yourself, and uh, things will work out. Yeah, why is that so hard? Yeah, what's, <laughs> what the fuck's so hard about that, you guys? All right, thanks, man. Yeah, thank you. Bye. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
bootstraps. We recorded that episode probably a year before, probably longer, maybe a year and a half before the election. So it was like before a lot of the things started happening that would make that super relevant. I thought it was last March. I thought it was in the spring of last year. It was last March, like I said. Uh, (laughs) But the timing is like, you're right in that it was before things got really serious about the election and long before people truly understood what was coming, right? Yeah. And it was kind of based off of a couple articles. One was a summary on Slate Star Codex of another guy's article, but a couple articles on Slate Star Codex that I found pretty enlightening and kind of mind-blowing. You want to talk about those articles? Yeah, because the whole deal is whenever you talk about class, it sounds like a very boring subject because people assume you're just going to be talking about income, that it's going to be about education level, you know, income and access to things like that. And it's not that at all. The central point that blew my mind is we make the assumption that people on what society sees as a lower class from us, like the stereotypical trailer trash or people living in the ghetto, we make an unspoken assumption that they're trying to be our class and are failing. That when they talk in a trailer park accident or when they talk with slang, that you assume they're, without saying it, that they're trying to talk like you, but they're just doing a bad job of it. And that they aspire to be you but they just can't when the reality is they aspire to have more money. Like everybody wishes they could have, you know, a nicer car or a decent place or a better neighborhood, but they don't aspire to elevate themselves out of liking football and pizza. They just want more of those things. It makes more sense when you then turn around and think about how you see the super rich If you listen to that episode, every time I offer an example of how the rich spend their time, it becomes clear that I I don't know any of them. So, (laughs) but like in my mind, I picture them spending their spare time at like these art gallery fundraisers or at their ranch riding their horses they raise or at art auctions or it's things I don't aspire to be doing that. I don't sit there. I'm not jealous of that stuff. If I picture myself having a billion dollars, I'm picturing like a giant TV to play video games on. I'm picturing like a really good steak restaurant, not a restaurant where the food is like pills and foam and a puddle of something that's like an artistic expression. I want like the nicest steakhouse, the best pizza, the best burger, but it's still my class's stuff, right? I just want more of it. So it suddenly makes so much more sense when you think about how you look down on those people. And like when they try to dress up for an event and they're still wearing clothes that to you seem kind of trashy, you look down on them because you assume that, They were trying to perform your class and just fell flat on their face, but you don't realize that they're actually perfectly happy being in the class they're in. To kind of make things pretty clear to people, so the the way that this article that we first started talking about this in regards to broke things out was they said 10% of people are in an underclass consisting of generationally poor 
65% of people are in the labor class, which is what was referred to a lot as working class in this past election. But these are people who like football and beer and Coca-Cola and steaks and, you know, wrestling. They like wrestling, which Donald Trump made himself into a wrestling character. And Donald Trump really speaks their language, even though he's a billionaire. And then the next 23.5% are called the gentry class. And these are NPR listeners, basically. And then above them is the 1.5% of people who are the elite class, and these are the generationally wealthy people who, the gentry class, the uh, NPR listeners can get a job and finance and make a few million dollars, and you know you would think, oh, well, they're in the top 1%, but the elite class, this 1.5% of people are the generationally wealthy. They're very protective of their class. And that's the thing Jason was talking about. It has nothing to do with your salary or your income. It's a social class thing in the same way that England has a house of lords where like all the positions are inherited. America has an unspoken class system and this elite class a person who is a Rockefeller might decide to be a teacher. Actually, he says that the elite class tend to be people who don't get jobs because they consider it gauche and too working class. They have different values and they value completely different things. And there are all these social cues set up to protect yourself and also to differentiate your own class from the other classes. What One of the more interesting points I thought we covered was this idea that college, the university system in America, is actually more of a class training ground than it is a place where you're going to learn a specific set of skills. It's actually teaching you how to enact these, you know, rituals of the NPR class. And if you want to act like a gentry class person, act like one of those 23.5% of NPR listeners, you have to understand all of these different values because it's not like a thing where you can just like grab a cheat sheet and then blend in. There are millions of different factors that you have to consider. Not to make a lot of things Vonnegut, but I've been reading his autobiography and he talks about how his father and mother both came from wealthy families, married each other. And then when his dad was a working architect day to day, back in the 20s, people thought that was ridiculous in his family. They were like, oh, you you don't necessarily need to do that. You can just be a person who's wealthy like us. And then turned out it was pretty handy. Uh, But like within his life, his two older siblings were sent to private schools and then he was sent to public school because their fortunes went down in between. And his parents would talk about how, oh, we'll be elite again and send you to these private schools someday. But since he had been put in a probably gentry class situation, that sounded terrifying to him. He was like, if I'm taken away from my public school friends who are all I have, like that would be the worst thing I could imagine. Mm-hmm. It's an incredibly specific anecdote of it, but I feel like it speaks to it. Yeah, no, I think that's that's exactly right. Well, yeah, and he floats in the articles we cited, he floats some examples, because we say that income has nothing to do with it. Obviously, we associate these classes with certain income levels. But 
if you take your stereotypical person from the trailer park and they win the lottery, they'll be up an income class, but they will remain the same social class. Because the moment they walk into that art gallery, everything about the way they walk, like literally their, their gait, the way they walk in their shoes, what they're drinking, how they do their hair, how big their earrings are, how they do their makeup, how they talk, their language, their phrasing, everything will signify lower class. You can shake it with a lifetime of dedicated training, but that keeps people in the strata almost more than anything else. Conversely, he said, if you had a member of that gentry class, like say some woman from a fairly wealthy family, say she dropped out of her law firm because she wanted to become an artist and so found like a small apartment in like a black neighborhood where she voluntarily was living on $15,000 a year or something like that. According to the IRS, she's now poverty, but everything, her upbringing, her habits, her like they will call it class, like she's a classy lady, like her tone, her manners, everything is still gentry. And that would follow her wherever she went. She would stick out like a sore thumb in a homeless shelter, but she would not stick out at, at like a sore thumb at some friend's wealthy friend's wedding. Like you mentioned college, where I think the average listener kind of has their mind blown. It's when you realize that a job interview or any kind of interview Half of the interview is simply you demonstrating that you can perform in that class to explain why we tried to come up with like some very cartoonish examples. Like if you were in the operating room and the surgeon came in and it was like a black guy with like a, a grill, like like gold teeth thing on his teeth, you would think someone was playing a, a prank on you. When logically the entire concept of America is supposed to be, if you grew up in that Detroit neighborhood or wherever that guy's from, you should be able to get an education, do well in school, get student aid and, and student loans, go to college, get your medical degree to become a doctor. But it is assumed without anybody saying that, that somewhere along the way, you need to lose your black hood accent, you need to lose your mannerisms, you need to lose everything about your style and your fashion. Half of the mental load of making that progress would be navigating the social situations to become part of the social class that we allow to become doctors. Because if you're sitting there speaking in what I think of as street slang, and because of my upbringing, I think of those people as being low educated, you know, highly aggressive, things like that. He has to shed himself of all of that. That's probably the bigger barrier that keeps him from advancing beyond the simple mechanical things like the sheer amount of money he has, the distance he has to go to find a good school. Those things are factors too. That every step along the way, he would find himself in a social class that rejects him based on everything that is natural to him in terms of everything. Manner, talk, food, preferences, everything. Music preferences. He uses the example of like a woman who walks into a room. Her name is Sherry with an I. She calls you darling. She has like curly dyed hair. She's carrying her lunch, which is KFC with a big gulp. She has like long nails and like rings and bracelets and necklaces all over. You would think, okay, she's working class. She's a certain class of person. 
even if she had just won the lottery and was actually the richest person in your town, that's sort of the difference. Something we've kind of run into just over the course of our history of publishing articles is like how frequently people who win the lottery end up miserable and like losing a lot of their money. And I would imagine that a lot of it has to do with the fact that they're suddenly in a income bracket or a wealth bracket that is not what they're familiar with and was not set up for their particular sets of values. An example from my life is every college that I applied to coming out of high school, I had to do an alumni interview with people who had graduated from that school and who would presumably report back on their impressions of me if I had gone in to those interviews and talked about NASCAR or WWE wrestling, I'm assuming that I would have failed those. But instead, I rode in on a horse with a polo <laughs> mallet and uh, <laughs> dismounted and, you know, flipped my ascot over my shoulder. I had to do that for one school. And I remember driving to the house of the alum and just seeing how much nicer the suburbs were getting. Like, oh, I worked my way there. <laughs> right. We were somewhere in the middle class generally, but their place was... I had been in places like that, but it was still pretty astounding to me. Like I remember right. thinking in the interview, like, oh, part of this is to impress me with how wealthy I'll be if I select this school in the interview. Right. Yeah. You had your like Fresh Prince of Bel-Air moment. Yeah. <laughs> you're like, yo, this place is fly. And now you got into that school and you're very refined now. Let me tell you about it. Five, six, seven. Uh, <laughs> uh, most of this podcast will be wrapped by Alex going forward. I hope everybody's comfortable with that. But anyways, I think one of the really interesting points that they made was that each class is only really aware of the classes directly below them and directly above them. And so the NPR gentry class aren't really aware of the underclass consisting of the generationally poor. I think the gentry class, the NPR class, tends to think of people in the labor class as all being in the labor class. There's not a distinction where there's like this 10% that just never works or anything. Whereas the labor class doesn't know about the elite class. They just associate everyone with the NPR group. It's interesting. And, And the person who set this specific distinction up was clearly from the NPR class, and their understanding of it was that the elite class was playing the gentry and labor classes off of each other while secretly pulling the strings from behind the scenes. And there are also descriptions of American classes that are much more favorable to the labor class and much more critical of the gentry class. But that was the one that made sense to me because I am part of the NPR class. That's the key. And that's in terms of like, it may not be clear why we kept referring to the election here. Kind of understanding how bad we are at communicating with each other. It makes so much more sense if you realize that, and I would even argue that the groups right above you and right below you, you don't have a great understanding of, but everything outside of that range is cartoon characters. More importantly, Everyone assumes secretly that their class is the one that's correct. Because like earlier when I was talking about the wealthy and had this sort of cartoonish 
version of them all attending horse races or <laughs> or art art gallery receptions that's something i saw in like a movie i guess where normally the moment after that like a monkey runs loose through their art gallery reception and knocks everything <laughs> over that's my detailed knowledge of of how that class functions is them as like a prop in an adam sandler movie where their thing gets ruined by a runaway monkey i don't know if adam sandler has ever made a single monkey movie i just am assuming that somewhere along the line he starred with a monkey in a film my my go-to for that is caddyshack just all the wealthy people in right that's just what they're sure. up to so when we start talking to each other i cannot explain and i think i've done a poor job of explaining over the last how long is the trump trump's been president for eight eight nine years something like that <laughs> 12 years how long's it been I feel like I've done a poor job of explaining how obnoxious the NPR class is to the rest of America. Because within this group and the people who have the kind of spare time to read eight or nine think pieces a day about race and gender and political correctness and and being ever more aware and like that we take pride in always being on the cutting edge of what's the proper way to refer to people and things like that. The endless lecturing of language and the endless pearl clutching that occurs every time Trump does something that doesn't seem classy, that is so obnoxious to the rest of the country that it would be the exact same as if like one of those fictional rich people came down from their country club and started yelling at us for, I don't know, the crude language we use on the site, for not wearing a tie to the office. Like, we would not for one millisecond think they were right. We would wait till they left the room, and then we would start repeating what they said in a very funny, mocking voice. (laughs) Because the class above us, quote-unquote, is always frivolous and silly and overly concerned with ceremony rather than real things. For instance, I projected that they eat meals made up of foam and pills. That's probably not actually true. But I perceive that above me, their class is not real. They don't eat real food. They don't have real conversations. It's all stuffy like artifice. And then the classes below me, of course, they're all criminals, <laughs> and and it's two categories: either they're criminals or else they're poor. You poor thing, right? They're either miserable or they're criminals, and I have to decide which. There's only those two categories, and it's very difficult to perceive that at every every step of that ladder, it's the same thing. Th- that when they hear us lecturing them on cruelty to animals eating a cruelty-free chicken. Like, I will only eat chicken if I know it was raised on a farm where the chicken had, like, a personal assistant to, like, comb its its feathers. I cannot emphasize how ridiculous that makes us look and that when we then say, well, actually, people should be able to use a restroom according to their gender identity, to that class, it feels like, artifice it feels like that's why they keep using the phrase virtue signaling because it's a sciencey sounding term it means these npr lefty upper class folks who've never been to the inner city in their lives 
their favorite thing is just lecturing people on using the wrong words or whatever. And one more key distinction, we're almost out of time here, but a thing that this article pointed out was that the more similar they are to you, the more similar they look to you, the people who are in another class, the more you will resent them. So this is why the people in the NPR class will be sympathetic to working class people who are a different race than them or who have, you know, immigrated here from a different country, but they can't stand uh, working class people who look like them, who are also white. Or like in the case of Trump, we're allowed to make fun of Trump. Every late night comedian has their Trump accent that they do. That's like a lower class Queens accent that most people in the top 1.5 or top 23.5% of the classes speaks in. And so because it's Trump, we're allowed to do a funny accent. But if that person was coming from Mexico and of that lower class, like there's no way Seth Meyers would be doing like a fake Mexican accent. Like that would be the height of, of offensiveness. Or if he did it, it would be passed around YouTube as proof of his evil soul for the rest of his life. Yeah. Many, many think pieces written about it. But I would leave that as if we're doing this, I would tell people, if you go back and find that episode, and if someone can correct the actual run date on it, if I was wrong about the month, it makes even more sense now that I made at the time. And now looking back at how the election played out and why the arguments we made against Trump's supporters didn't convince them. It makes so much more sense because it was coming from a class they have no reason to respect. And in fact, something you pointed out, Jason, during the election, that every time Trump did something that caused the NPR class to freak out and write thousands of think pieces, lo and behold, his support would seemingly go up. And the NPR class, which is also the people who write the New York Times and the Washington Post and, you know, all of the respected journalistic institutions couldn't figure this out. They were like, surely this will torpedo him. And then when it didn't, they were like, what is happening? Why is this not working? And it's like, no, it's actually only making them like him more because of how it's flabbergasting you. And his boasting on tape about how good he is with the ladies and how he can just grope them or whatever, that is offensive to a certain class. And the female support among that class um, that already supported Trump, it did not hurt him at all because that is the type of language they're much more used to. And I can never convince my coworkers, anyone around me of that because it's like, well, no, objectively, he's talking about sexual assault. It's like, I know back home, we objectively joked about sexual assault all the time. I I don't know. I'm not telling you it's right. I'm saying that did not hit their ears the way it hit yours. It's like, but I'm objectively right. That's objectively an awful thing to say. It's like, okay, just try to think about it longer. The class is not objective. I don't appreciate the impression you're doing of me right now. Uh, (laughs) Thanks, Jason. Uh, I'll talk to you in 10 years at the reunion show. All right. Thank you. Bye. 
All right, so we're joined by Mandy Russin. Mandy, I was saying it's crazy to me that the audience hasn't heard your voice up to this point. I prefer uh, to uh, remain anonymous. Yeah, yeah, you're a real creep in that way. Just stay in the shadows. So you and I have worked together for how long now? Um, since 2008. I joined Cracked in February 2008. And I believe that was shortly after demand acquired the brand. Yeah. Yeah. I think it was like a year or six months or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. It was right after. So it was pretty early on. I don't think I actually met you in real life until probably five years after that. No, that's not true. We met. Yeah. Like we met right after you joined the team. Yeah. There was a, there was a meeting that Jason and I came to Jason. No, I wasn't. I I know. I disagree, but maybe. Yeah. All right. <laughs> okay, let's um, not bicker over that. No, so what's your favorite thing about me? No, wow, you're joking. really putting me on the uh, spot, Jack. I'm just joking. Uh, no, but you are a huge fan of the site like me. So I just wanted to get that across to the audience. You kind of get what's great about Yeah, I, I love this brand and I'm very, very passionate about it. I've spent a lot of time working on it. You know, the brand has been a constant part of my life for the last eight years as you, Jack, I mean, I uh, joke around with the team all the time that I think I hear your voice more than I do my husband's because we've shared an office together for the last three years or so. But yeah, I love the brand so much. I mean, I'm sad that you're leaving, but you leave, uh, you know, you've built such a great team and you leave the brand in really good hands. Yeah. Um, And so I'm confident that they'll excel where you didn't. Maybe. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, you just said that the brand is going to be in great hands. We just had this meeting, my last lunch with the team, and Mandy said that the brand is going to be in great hands, perhaps better hands. And I don't think she was joking. (laughs) I I laughed and she was like, oh, oh yeah. (laughs) So you've been one of the top few people at Cracked for a long time now. A decade, right? A decade, yeah. And Almost a decade. you're going to continue to run Cracked yes. going forward. Yes. And I've already told the audience that the reason I'm leaving is that I challenged you to a fist fight. And, and you lost. You just beat the living shit out of me. It was brutal. And I didn't feel like I could show my face at the <laughs> office anymore. I just wanted to introduce you to the audience. Mandy's amazing, super talented uh, oh, Happiness thanks, Week is... Her invention, lots of the best stuff that you see on the site is her invention. She just doesn't throw her face and voice all over the site like I do and grab attention. But she's an amazing woman. I'm really lucky to have worked with you. And I can't wait to see what you do with the site going forward. Oh, thanks, Jack. Should we hug now? Uh, Yes. Yes? Yes. Maybe not. No, yeah. we're air hugging. Yeah, that's good enough. That's another. good enough. All right. All right, that was bittersweet. I usually say that was fun uh, because it usually is, but I'm (laughs) sad to be leaving. So I wanted to leave you guys with a couple of pieces of advice that have been helpful to me over the last 11 years. The first one is from Conan O'Brien, actually. He gave it to me at the secret meeting of the O'Briens deep beneath the cliffs of Moore. Uh, No, I read it in a magazine around the time I started Cracked, and his advice was give it away, uh, whatever your talent is. Like, don't be precious or stingy with it. Just, like, give it away to as many people as generously as you can to the point of exhaustion. 
That's a piece of advice I probably thought about the most throughout my time here. Anyways, that's step one. And step two, and really the only other piece of advice I can offer is whatever you end up doing, be lucky enough to work with Daniel O'Brien, Jason Pargin, Michael Swaim, Randall Maynard, Robert Brockway, Soren Bowie, Christy Harrison, Rosie Kaler, Robert Evans, Sandra Sorensen, Cody Johnston, Carmen Angelica, Brett Rader, Abe Epperson, Adam Ganser, Syriac Lamar, Teresa Lee, Bridget Greenberg, Thomas Ryman, Anita Serwacki, Anna Dresden, Adam Todd Brown, David Christopher Bell, Christina Newhall, Nick Rude, Moana Cheryl, Josh Sargent, Mac Leasty, Ann Smiley, Katie Golden, Brendan Carter, and Alex Schmidt. Oh, and then get a bunch of absurdly talented freelancers like Chris Buckle, Sean Riley, Mark Hill, Katie Stoll, Anna Hosny, Logan Trent, Katie Willett, Chris Pauls, Ryan Menezes, Evan Simon, J.M. McNabb, Christian Rodriguez, Dan Duddy, Dan Hopper, and Emily Leasty, uh, among many others, to put in just like heroic amounts of work. Uh, and you should be good. They don't necessarily have to all be hired in that order, uh, but it has to be those exact people. They're the main reason Cracked had a good editorial and video and podcasting product over the past 11 years, and I'm very sad to be missing them. Anyways, I hope that's useful. Uh, Should be simple enough. And with that, I'm going to hand things off to Alex, a.k.a. Schmitty the Clam, which I guess now you can tell me how much you hate that nickname (laughs) and demand that it be Schmitty the Eagle Hawk or Schmitty the Cobra (laughs) from this day forward. Clam forever. No way. (laughs) Clam forever. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, thank you, Jack. Brief footnotes, we have a live show June 10th at ECB, and then there's going to be links to all the different podcasts and books and things we talked about in the description of this. But I'm a big lame-mo, and I would like to just say that this is the favorite podcast of comedian friends of mine and old school friends of mine and my mom and an amazing... (laughs) array of people and it's a way people I think have been able to discover comedy and discover new music and discover just like concepts and facts and things that make being alive cooler and all of those great things about it are because of you Jack because you animated it and drove it week in week out all the time and then talking to uh, just people I think we're all pretty bowled over by what you've meant for us you've been kind to us You've taken a sincere interest in each of us. You've, in many cases, tolerated us because <laughs> we're not always easy. But, but most of all, we get to be an, an us because of you. And, uh, and we can't thank you enough for that. But uh, just thank you. Thanks, man. I appreciate it. Yeah. Uh, people can't um, see that I'm openly weeping. Right <laughs> <laughs> thank you. That means a lot. And I am an animated character. Most people haven't seen me in person, but I'm, <laughs> I'm an animated. I'm a cartoon. But fun wordplay joke to go out on there. <laughs> I didn't do any jokes with it, so I'm sorry. That's, <laughs> yeah. <it's laughs> we like. I was. I just did my last editorial call, and we ended on a uh, on a joke by Robert Evans saying, "In the new Spider-Man movie, they should have." Uh, an Indian food scene, and then they could call it Spider Non. And I was like, "Really? That's gonna be the that's gonna be the fucking joke I go out on." Christ, and then, man. and then he flew to L.A., dropped a microphone, <laughs> yeah, exactly. which was a bit aggressive. But threw his phone through my window. Uh, yeah. So, thanks, man. And thank you're, you. You're gonna do an amazing job. I, it's a, thank you. All right, and I guess 
That's it. You'll be back next week with more podcasts. Uh, you can follow Brett Rader, who put this episode and many other episodes together at Brett, R-A-D-E-R. Alex, where can we follow you? At Alex Schmitty on Twitter. All right. And I'm at Jack underscore O-B-R-I-E-N. And they'll be back next week with more podcasts. Hey, thanks for listening to this episode of the Cracked Podcast. And normally there would be an ad here, but instead of that, we have a simple request for you guys. And we love having great advertisers on this show, folks like Harry's and Squarespace from today's episode. But in order to do that, we need your help. Please do us a favor and go to podcastlistener.com slash crack to answer a few short questions. It would be really helpful to us, and it would ensure we get more awesome sponsors selling cool stuff you want to buy. You like that, right? Again, that's podcastlistener.com slash crack. Thank you. I'm Stephen Dubner, host of Freakonomics Radio and also of a new podcast called Tell Me Something I Don't Know. It is live journalism wrapped in a game show with super smart contestants, celebrity panelists, and a live fact checker. Our first two seasons got 8 million listens, and now we are back with a third. You never know what you're going to learn. Instead of taking the old kidneys out, a surgeon will opt to leave the new kidneys in and they'll just keep adding them in as many as they can fit. <laughs> Turns out that the term three sheets to the wind is actually a miller's term. It comes from windmills, which are supposed to have four sails or four sheets. And if the miller forgets one of them, the windmill starts shaking and stumbling like a drunk person. Oh, I did not three know that. Subscribe to Tell Me Something I Don't Know on Stitcher or wherever you get your podcasts. You can catch up on our first two seasons and don't you dare miss season three. Thanks. This has been an Earwolf production. Executive produced by Scott Ackerman, Chris Bannon, and Colin Anderson. For more information and content, visit Earwolf.com. Earwolf.